X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Present-day Portland is located on the traditional village sites of the Multnomah, Wasco, Cowlitz, Cathlamet, Clackamas, Bands of Chinook, Tualatin, Kalapuya, Malala, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia and Willamette Rivers. Let us also acknowledge the robust native community made up of tribal diversity that originates from around the country and whose journeys have brought them to Portland by ways of forced displacement or seeking opportunities. Today, these same communities celebrate their heritage, showing resilience and tenacity that would be greatly admired by their ancestors. Thank you to Siedem Edmo for sharing these words of acknowledgement and congratulations to Siedem for winning the Spirit of Reciprocity Award from the Potlatch Fund. This award acknowledges Siedem's many accomplishments within Northwest Indian Country. X-Ray. It's Monday, November 23rd. Today, back in the day, November 23rd, 1963, Doctor Who, the British science fiction television show, was broadcast on BBC television for the first time. The Doctor was played by William Hartnell. In the first series, he traveled through time and space in the TARDIS, a blue 1950s police box. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, but just to make sure, a TARDIS looks like your typical UK telephone box, but instead of being red, it's painted blue with police box written on top of it and serves as a fictional time machine and spacecraft in the show. Doctor Who became a significant part of British popular culture, gained a cult following globally. The show ran from 1963 to 1989. There was an unsuccessful attempt to revive regular production in 1996 with a backdoor pilot in the form of a film. The show was relaunched in 2005, and since then, it's been produced in-house by BBC Wales in Cardiff. Thirteen actors have headlined the series as The Doctor, and in 2017, Jodie Whittaker became the first woman to play the role. The transition from one actor to another is written into the plot of the show, by the way, with a concept of regeneration into a new incarnation. It's a plot device in which a Time Lord transforms into a new body when the current one is too badly harmed to heal normally, or when they want a new actor. Each actor's portrayal has been unique. They all represent stages in the life of the same character. Together, they form a single lifetime with a single narrative. The time-traveling feature of the plot means that different incarnations of the Doctor occasionally meet. Today, back in the day, November 23, 1979, Pink Floyd released The Wall, selling six million copies within the first two weeks. It's a rock opera, explores the concepts of abandonment and isolation symbolized by the wall. The songs create an approximate storyline of events in the life of the protagonist Pink, a character based on Sid Barrett as well as Roger Waters, whose father was killed in World War II. The Wall is the 11th studio album released by the English rock band Pink Floyd. The album topped the U.S. charts for 15 weeks and reached number three in the U.K. And The Wall is the last album to feature Pink Floyd as a quartet. Keyboardist Richard Wright was fired by Waters during production, stayed on as a salaried musician. Three singles were issued from the album, Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2, Run Like Hell, and Comfortably Numb. From 1980 to 1981, Pink Floyd performed the full album on tour that featured elaborate theatrical effects. And in 1982, The Wall was adapted into a feature film. Waters wrote the screenplay. Today, we will have your Quick 6 News headlines and an interview with Brooke Jackson Glidden, editor of Eater PDX. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Protesters gathered in Salem to demand that Governor Brown let them catch a communicable disease. That's not how they put it. They said stop the pause. On Saturday, a crowd of over 100 people, that's not that many, a crowd of over 100 people, wow, 100, gathered outside the Capitol to protest recent restrictions enacted by the governor. Most in the crowd wore no masks. 
After record-high COVID cases around the state and nationwide, Governor Brown ordered a two-week freeze on businesses. That includes the Thanksgiving holiday and restricts private meetings at homes. This freeze differs from previous freezes because a violation of the order may result in a fine, a citation, even arrest. In addition to issues with the freeze, protesters also set up a booth with information about fraudulent voting. Other protesters sold and or carried Trump memorabilia. There was no police presence. Protesters regrouped near the governor's mansion in Salem, setting off car alarms, honking horns. Police told them to stop to avoid a noise violation. Here's the scientific viewpoint of Gina Shipman, a rally organizer. Quote, I'm a hugger. I'm at rallies all the time. If this so-called virus was as bad as they say it was, don't you think I would have gotten it by now? Saturday was the second consecutive record-setting day for COVID cases, with 1,509 reported statewide. Don't know how many of them were huggers. Here's your daily dose of data. Sunday was the third straight day of record-breaking COVID numbers. 1,517 new cases were reported. There was one death from COVID. The state's case total has now grown to 65,170. Our death toll is 820. These numbers come in days after the OHA announced that they would be changing the way they report test results. Previously, the Oregon Health Authority has been reporting the number of individuals tested. Now they will be reporting results of every test, even if the same person has gotten multiple tests. The change was announced on Friday after a KGW-TV report noticed a discrepancy between the number of tests conducted and numbers reported by the OHA. This new reporting method will place the state 30th nationally for tests per capita. This effectively doubles the amount of Oregon's reported tests per week. This also changes the rate of positivity in the state. More reported tests mean that our reported rate of positivity will greatly decrease. Despite this, Oregon is still above the threshold that marks a danger zone for community spread. Of course, officials are still urging Oregonians to stay home for the next two weeks to help prevent further spreading. An eviction ban extension may be on its way. The current eviction ban, set to expire on December 31st, protects tenants from eviction. Legislators developed a proposal which extends that ban until June 30th of 2021, six more months. The plan would also provide partial compensation to landlords for lost rental income. Renters will be required to pay any and all back rent on the 1st of July. The current moratorium allows for six months to pay back rent. The proposal does not protect all renters, however. Renters will be required to submit a statement of financial hardship experience since the state's first shutdown order March 16th. The inclusion has been supported by landlord groups, but critics say it's only going to make it more difficult for renters to get the protection they might need. The proposal also requires landlords give tenants a 15-day notice period before evicting due to non-payment. Unfortunately for renters, the proposal does give landlords more options for eviction than the current moratorium. Options for evicting tenants include demolishing housing units or converting the units. Eugene Representative Julie Fahey, who took a prominent role in drafting the proposal, said the pairing back of restrictions is a show of optimism. The hope is by mid-year next year, folks will be back to work. They'll certainly be caught up on unemployment. The proposal also asks for $100 million to help renters and landlords. The bulk of the money will likely go to compensate landlords. Landlords will be able to recoup 80% of past due rent. Legislators hope to present this proposal at a special session, which might happen next month. House Speaker Tina Kotek urged Governor Brown to call a catastrophic special session next month. In 2012, voters added an amendment to the state constitution, which allowed the governor to call a catastrophic special legislative session. Now, House Speaker Tina Kotek is calling on Brown to schedule the first catastrophic session in state history. 
The rules for this special session would be less strict than the two special sessions that met over the summer. Lawmakers would likely not be required to show up in person to the Capitol. The legislature would also not need a two-thirds quorum to operate. Kotek specifically mentioned the $100 million fund for rent relief as an urgent measure to be taken. Many state Democrats were apparently surprised by Kotek's request. Senate President Peter Courtney said to reporters, quote, I talked to the governor. I didn't think either one of us knew there was going to be a public statement. Courtney and the governor said separately that they were open to the idea but would not want to have the meeting in person. Besides the eviction ban extension, other bills that may be on the table include better wildlife protections, cocktails to go for bars and restaurants, and a bill to help move along Portland's new police oversight board. A regular session is scheduled to begin for lawmakers in January. Oregon may be two counties short sometime in the future. Union and Jefferson counties, no relation, voted in favor of pushing lawmakers to consider seceding from Oregon and joining with Idaho. For the counties to successfully join Idaho, they'd need votes in the Oregon legislature. They're probably going to say no. The Idaho legislature, don't know what they would do, and the U.S. Congress. So it's pretty unlikely we'll be losing those two counties anytime in the near future. Still, supporters of the border move say the west side, more populous and more democratic-leaning, receives more attention than politically and geographically isolated counties in the east. One of the organizers said there are similar agriculture products, similar timber industries, and similar conservative values. Counties can't secede from the state unless approved by the legislature. They're unlikely to give permission. The sponsor of the thing said the long-term goal is to have 22 of Oregon's 36 counties secede and form Greater Idaho. And finally, good news. TriMet is beefing up transit safety without armed guards. Last Thursday, TriMet staff revealed plans for 25 new steps to increase security on public transit without the use of armed guards. The steps range from installing new lights at bus stops to a pilot program for a mobile crisis response team. The response team is similar to the Portland Street Response, a program that was delayed due to the pandemic. It would involve unarmed mental health professionals or social workers responding to incidents instead of armed police. TriMet says they will have a more detailed plan in nine months and hope to begin the program over the next two years. These steps were proposed in response to a rider survey, which received over 12,000 responses. The survey found that BIPOC riders were found to be more likely to feel unsafe. Better lighting and the presence of other riders were two factors that made riders feel the most safe. Many respondents also said that having more TriMet employees on buses might also make them feel safer. The majority of riders said that customer service personnel were most important, while bus drivers said they preferred transit police officers. TriMet would likely roll out these reforms sometime over the next two years. And that's and today's, today's Quick, quick Six, Six Local, Local Rundown. Rundown. X-Ray. And now we have an interview with Brooke Jackson-Glidden from Eater PDX. Brooke will be speaking with X-Ray's Julia Oppenheimer about how she perceives the upcoming four-week shutdown will affect the Portland restaurant scene. Here are Brooke and Julia. My name is Julia. I am here with the amazingly talented Brooke Jackson-Glidden of Eater PDX. Brooke, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I We have a lot to catch up on today. So as yeah. many people know, restaurants in Oregon are starting to tight, they're tighten, res- facing tighten restrictions tomorrow. Um, Brooke, how do you, how do you see this going? Well, if you know, you talk to the restaurant community right now, the chefs um, and the restaurant workers, they see it going uh, pretty devastatingly, to be honest. Um, I think uh, if we don't see some sort of substantial 
stimulus soon, it could be really, really bad for our restaurants. Yeah, so if anyone's been living under a rock the last week and doesn't realize, um, Portland restaurants are being forced to go to takeout only for the next four weeks, the rest of the state at least two weeks um, due to rising COVID numbers. Um, do you think there's any chance that takeout is going to make keep our restaurants thriving for the next four weeks? Well, if you just think about the way a restaurant works in terms of margins, in terms of how much things cost and how much money you have to make to sort of pay off things like, you know, rent and, and licensing fees and stuff like that, um, it, it can't cover it. It just can't. You know, I think if you even just think about how much people tip on takeout, it, it, it's just not enough to sustain the industry and the people who work in that industry. Um, I would love to see people get really into takeout, but I do think that there has been a little bit of resistance and people are also dealing with their own financial issues during the pandemic. So people aren't eating out as much. Um, and you also are seeing people, if they do want to do some sort of restaurant supporting, they uh, go the delivery model and the actual way that delivery apps are structured isn't necessarily beneficial to restaurants. And in fact, maybe makes things harder in certain cases. How so you mean with like tips and, and margins? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that um, when it comes to delivery apps specifically, there are also fees that are charged to restaurants um, that they are essentially paying the app for every um, meal that they sell. So it's another sort of cost that's taken out of the cost of that meal. So it ends up being, even at with when it's capped at 10%, which it is in Portland, um, it's still taking out a percentage of the cost of that the revenue taken from that meal. So, you know, it just makes it really, really hard for restaurants to be successful. It's just another hurdle. So it's a smaller margin for the restaurant. And then for employees um, of restaurants, the the tip that you leave on your Postmates or DoorDash order, that does not go to the employee of the restaurant, right? It doesn't. You've noticed that there are a lot of restaurants that have started to add a uh, a note like tip the restaurant, you know, something that you can purchase at the restaurant that's really just a tip for servers. Oh, interesting. Um, but not every restaurant does that, and it's really unclear how many people are actually choosing to go out of their way to tip both the delivery driver and um, the staff at a restaurant. Right. It adds up a lot in the in the for the consumer if you're having to tip right. both your delivery driver and the restaurant, and also you're paying more than you would. Um, which is why I'm always telling my friends just order directly and, you know, pick it up yourself. It's a, it's exactly, it's a little bit more annoying, but it's better for the industry. You know, Uber doesn't mm -hmm. need our money as much as your neighborhood restaurant needs its money. Yeah. <laughs> um, so do our, our most restaurants that you talk to, are they laying off all of their employees or keeping them on to answer phones? folks are really trying to keep staff at this point but you know they have decided to go full takeout again I, you know i've talked to some people i think uh, nicole dirk said um epis especially um that are they feel like they have a handle on the takeout model because they've had to do this really sort of abrupt pivot back in, in march so they kind of go okay well we have we know how to do this now we know we have the takeout stuff we have like the actual materials that we need um we can just handle this and we can have our staff you know help, help handle those meals um because sometimes you know a lot of restaurants they shut down just because they didn't know how to structure their business anymore right like they had to 
actually figure out how to make a restaurant uh, takeout friendly when that had nothing to do with the business model that they had planned and the you know infrastructure that they have. Um, so some people feel a little bit more prepared for it, but a lot of other restaurants are laying people off. Are in, you know have basically warned people that they're going to lose their jobs on Wednesday. Mm. Um, and there were people who specifically, you know, I think of Bar King has, has basically shut down completely. They're doing barbecue on Saturdays, but they don't have daily service anymore. The bakery is still going, but that's pretty much it. Mm. And that's just a, a, a survival mechanism at this point. Yeah. But how well is that going to work if, you know, one day a week, is that enough to pay your rent and, Probably not, unfortunately. I think the the thought behind a place choosing to close, choosing to wait it out, is that you're not spending the money on food, you're not spending the money on labor, you're not spending the money to that that is adding to that cost. So if I can make enough money with one person working really hard on Saturday, sell enough brisket, you know, maybe I can cover my rent, but I don't have to pay for the extra food cost, the extra labor cost. Right. So, you know, it's tough. It's it's a constant gamble for folks. Yeah. And I've noticed even, you know, with restaurants being open lately, I am someone who I work in a restaurant, but on nights I don't work, I think, oh, I want to support my neighborhood restaurant. When my nights off are Monday and Tuesday, there are very few restaurants that have been open on Monday and Tuesday since, you know, before March. And so now we're going to be going to like one day a week restaurants. So I guess in one sense, maybe it tightens the, the, you know, makes you more conscious of it's Saturday, I have to go to Bar King. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think that there are folks who have found that making something feel really special one day a week or having specials every day that are different every day, it does bring people into the restaurant because it makes people yeah, want to take the opportunity when they can. Totally. Um, but you know, again, it's like, it's such an odd thing to say, but I really don't think that this is a science. I think some things are successful for some people and some things, the same thing might be unsuccessful for someone else. It's, it's, and I think that stress, that pressure that is on business owners and their workers is um, part of what makes this so difficult and damaging beyond the financial weight, the anxiety surrounding illness, that sort of thing. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about what the botanist is, is got going on right now? <laughs> Yes. Um, so I will say that I heard little rumors about this way back in the day, right around March or April, regarding um, Hugo cocktail sales. Um, basically, you know, distilleries and other businesses, they were given sort of a lax ability to have, you know, local delivery for spirits, stuff like that. But for some reason, restaurants and bars haven't been able to sell cocktails or hard, hard liquor to to go in any sort of way. And, you know, the, the real reason behind this and something that a lot of people don't understand is that this is not an OLCC issue. It's because of the way that the Oregon Constitution is written. So the only way to ameliorate it, make it so cocktails, that bars and restaurants can sell cocktails to go is to go through a legislative angle and, and have it legalized um, at the state legislature. I so, didn't know that either. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's something that a lot of people miss. Um, and it's part of the reason that it's been so difficult. However, business owners have been really pushing for a special session. So they're, you know, Rob Noss has actually written a bill, you know, everyone's ready to go, but it hasn't been high enough priority. That's been the language that they've heard from lawmakers. So at this point, 
botanist has been so frustrated with the fact that they're going into yet another shutdown. They have no real form of revenue. A lot of bars, you know, they have food programs, but maybe some don't have massive ones or don't can't afford to keep a chef and a kitchen staff. They're not also getting cocktail sales. You know, right. margins on cocktails no, are way better. Like, we are going to start selling cocktails, whether you like it or not. We're going to start selling cocktails as a form of protest of the fact that this this particular law has not been changed, but the, that lawmakers not prioritizing legalizing to- cocktail sales because they're not even asking. I think they are asking for stimulus in certain ways, but this is such an easy fix in their perspective, and it isn't asking for any money from the state budget. It's not asking for anything other than the ability to do their job. So what would cocktails to go look like? Would it be um, like a plastic cup that you get and take into the street, or would it be more like a prepared cocktail kit that you get to take home and make yourself? So it does vary. Um, there are a lot of states where this is legal. As far My last count was 33 states. Um, and you see a lot of different things. Some people are specifically bottling, in the, bottling them in the style of like a growler, or if you've seen those sort of like homemade kombucha bottles where you have a little plunger, stuff like that. Some people are putting them in a plastic bottle. If you've been to Eam and gotten a cocktail kit, you've seen them that way. Some people want the ability to get a cocktail kit. So, you know, there's a, a little um, bottle of like a nip of, of spirit in there. And some people want full, fully mixed cocktails. Um, either way, almost everywhere, there's a limit to two cocktails um, to be purchased in one particular order. You have to order food as well. So, you know, the concerns of some of the... Um, recovery-oriented groups are worried that making cal- alcohol access easier right now, that that could be a problem. There are actually a lot of hurdles that are built into these sort of bills or temporary provisions that make it a little bit harder. It's, it's not as, um, I would say, dangerous for, for people in recovery or people who are struggling with alcoholism. Well, in Oregon in particular has been pretty, uh, we have some pretty like arcane liquor laws when it, as far mm-hmm. as, you know, we're, we're not progressive. When it comes to alcohol, mm-hmm. even though we have a huge bar culture, um, right. it seems like we always have a lot of hurdles to cover. Do you think a cocktail to go program could save a lot of Portland's bars? I don't think that it, it could do it alone. Like, I, I really yeah. genuinely, I think it's it's sort of silly at this point that we don't have any sort of real cocktail legalization. But it just makes it a lot harder for bars that they there is really no revenue source at that point, you know. Um, some bars are lucky in that they have good food programs, but not all of them are, especially some of the bars that we really love, the bars that have been around forever. Um, you know, those are really places that are reliant on spirit sales. And, um, you know, at that point, there's no real option for them to stay open. Um, I think at this point, you know, I talked to my sister Dublin from Gado Gado the other day for a story. And she was basically saying everyone says that there are these ways that are going to be saved, either outdoor, you know, patios or takeout or, you know, to-go cocktail sales. At this point, it, it's really a matter of stimulus. It's really a matter of getting the right financial aid to business owners and individuals and allowing, creating some protections for people who are about to, who are struggling to pay rent, who are just struggling to stay open at all. Yeah, not to mention all of the money people sunk into patios, uh, assuming right. that Indoor dining might be canceled, but patios would still be allowed. Um, that's not what happened. I'm afraid not. Yeah, and you're right. People spent, on, on our survey, people spent somewhere between 1000 and $15,000 $15, building their patios over the last few months. And to not be able to get a return on those, it's got to be really, really hard for some of those restaurants. 
Yeah, and not to mention a lot of these patios are actually uh, parking spaces that will probably be claimed back by the city at some point, um, <laughs> having spent money on something that you know won't even have a return on investment come next summer, perhaps. Right is uh, real devastating. So how can people support restaurants right now? I would say order takeout quite a bit. If, if you can, um, if you can afford it, please uh, definitely tip well on takeout for those of you who are dining in. I know it's a hard pill for some people to swallow, but, you know, think of it as a safety wrap, a little extra something you can do. Um, I will say that if you can some restaurants will be closed but they still have merch available purchasing merch stuff is actually kind of helpful for restaurants gift cards and if you're and in terms of stimulus call your legislators call your state lawmakers you know really mobilize as um constituents to push for a better stimulus package for restaurant owners and restaurant workers so when you call your state legislature say we want a special session to address Restaurants in Portland, yeah. in Oregon, or say exactly, yeah, Special okay, is what people are looking for. Yeah, well, Brooke, thank you so much, and I, um, I'm so happy to talk to you, and also so sad that for what's happening in our our city that is so well known for its food culture. Absolutely, it's it's an, a year like any other. Unlike any other, that is true. Um, I often wonder if we're going to see a lot of of Portland's favorite food carts becoming brick and mortar after this, because honestly being a food cart was probably your best bet for handling the pandemic in, a, in the food industry. Yeah. You know, it's actually odd. There are a lot of places that have started to become food carts that have become brick and mortars. If you want a little good news to end on. <laughs> I love good news to end on. Yeah. Goomba is, is uh, has opened as a restaurant. There are others. It's good to see places sort of powering on right now. Yeah, and a lot of innovation and, you know, we're everyone's doing what they can. So do what you can. Call your legislator, tip your service staff, tip your driver, all that. Thank you so much, Brooke. Thank you. Thanks to Brooke for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for your five-star review. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.